Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Yeah, so hi Duncan, thank you very much for the uh, for Metius and for talking to us about your book, really enjoyed it. Um, we'll all be murdered in our beds. The shocking history of crime reporting in Britain. Well, I was going to start off by asking you, um, what's the secret of a sort of um, a good crime reporter, do you think? Are there any particular ingredients that make someone, make someone good at it? Or? I think you have to be curious and enjoy it, and I think... You're too young to remember um, there used to be a police recruiting slogan, which was dull, it isn't. Um, And I think that is what most crime reporters feel about the job. Uh, What makes a good one? There's a whole mixture of people. Some people have very good police contacts. Some people have very good criminal contacts. Uh, Very much fewer number have very good of both, and it's quite difficult to slip between it, but I think a, um, a curiosity, um, an openness, and um, an ability, I suppose, not to assume that what you're told either by a police officer or a criminal is necessarily the case. And where, and where did your stories uh, come from, and do they come from? Do you, is it from the police or from the underworld or from a mixture of both? Well, the, the mix, mixture of both. I mean, I started off... Um, I suppose having much better contacts with um, with the underworld, um, partly because the, back in the in the seventies there was a lot of suspicion of Fleet Street. It was um, and that period when Ronnie Biggs got stitched up by the Daily Express. You know that he had made a deal with them, and the Express behind his the, behind his back went to the police. Mm. Um, and I think that and other similar incidents, um, Walter Probin, who was known as Angel Face, um, wanted to talk to the Daily Mirror and, and assumed that he was, he, he was 
escaping at the he had escaped at the time and wanted to give them his story. And they stitched him up and they told the police and then they got a front page story in which they didn't mention that they they had uh, given him their word, as it were, that they were going to meet him and chat. So I think there was a cynicism about um, the um, Fleet Street Press and I was working at, at that stage in, in the 70s for, well, initially I was at LBC, but at Time Out mm. magazine, which did news in those days. Um, and therefore it was easier to have a rapport with them because they they know that they knew that Time Out had been <laughs> raided by the police on a number of occasions, and therefore they thought that that uh, we might be more sympathetic and wouldn't stitch them up. Is it is interesting? Um, uh, you know how the relationship between uh, reporters and uh, police, in particular, perhaps changed over the years. Because um, uh, you know, from my perspective at Press Gazette, it seems um, very very. Uh, uh, tense at the moment and uh, it is and, and difficult. Yes. I mean, what, what's your uh, what's your take on that from the, from writing the book and from your own experience? Well, going back to the nineteen fifties and sixties, the uh, before I was writing, but that period, mm. the relationship between the press and the police was very very close. Uh, the Crime Reporters Association had this in with the officers, and and if you that particular period, sometimes. Um, the crime reporters would would actually drive the police to the scene of a crime if they were all drinking together in the same pub, Tom Sandrock of of the Telegraph. They hung out together, they drank with the flying squad every Monday night and and so on. It was very, very close. Um, And therefore they got the inside stories on on lots of big crimes and lots of tip-offs. The downside was that at that period, which was there was a lot of corruption on the detective side, not the uniform side, I think so much, in Scotland Yard in the 1960s, early 70s, that was cleaned up largely by Robert Mark when he became the commissioner. The downside was that they didn't cover that level of corruption. Um, I think you now have a reverse situation, uh, post-Leveson, post-hacking, where um, detectives are very reluctant to be seen having a drink with, having lunch with a reporter. And, and that, just talking to my contemporaries who are still, or people a bit younger than me, but people I worked with, um, like Martin Brunt at Sky and um, John Toomey at The Express and Mike Sullivan at The Sun, uh, they will all say it is very, very difficult um, to establish that relationship now with with police where they feel they can meet you and explain what's going on, Um, but they're worried that they will be be then accused of leaking stuff. And does the sort of reader and the sort of general public lose out as a result of that? Yes, yes, I'm sure they do. You don't get the nuances and, you know, why are they doing this? Why did they not charge this person? Why did they charge this person? Why did it take so long? Sometimes that's quite complex to explain. And and if you can do that off the record with somebody who trusts you and, and who you trust, then it does explain things. And now, if it comes just through a press officer, there are some good press officers, but there are some bad press officers, um, then the public doesn't get such a good picture. I guess obviously the thing that's really prompted this huge uh, sort of backlash, I think, against journalists from the police is Operation Elvedon, perhaps, and the and the fact that the uh, you know lots of journalists, or well, some journalists on the Sun and the Mirror, you know, paying police officers for stories, 
and so you know the journalists themselves were arrested and police officers in some cases sent to prison. I mean, what, 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 what were your sort of thoughts about that as that unfolded? I, I guess it's probably not something you might have done on the Guardian. I don't know. Well, the, I mean, it was extraordinary seeing the way it unfolded and it, it has ramifications which I, I don't think of because the civil cases coming through now, which you've been mm. reporting in Press Gazette, that, you know, I think more will emerge. And I think, you know, again, talking... I've, talking specifically to crime reporters, um, most of them were pretty shocked that that kind of stuff was going on and also shocked that um, when the when the police finally did react, that News International, as it was then, handed over mm-hmm. that great tranche of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I know not that many journalists have been convicted, but I, I think 34 sources have been convicted, including eight police officers. So the message there is you can't necessarily know that when you contact a journalist that your email, your mobile, your phone call to them might end up one day with the police. And I think that's been the other downside of it, apart from the police not being prepared to talk. Yeah, so I suppose the potential sort of chilling effect, as people say, on sources maybe being less... Or reluctant to come forward now. Yes, I mean, just in that in that sort of area. The other thing that we're, big story for us at Pesca the last couple of years was the, um, you know, the fact that the um, um, Met Police, uh, you know, viewed the phone records of uh, some journalists. Yes. To find the police officers who'd spoken to them about yes. that game, yeah. and we found out that it was actually fairly widespread. That this goes, I think it was eighty-one uh, cases in the last three years, or eighty-two cases in the last three years. Were you were you quite shocked by that when you, uh, to find out that? Um, uh, as a, or you've you always been sort of naturally fairly cautious about that sort of thing, you know, m- mobiles. Uh, you know, the fact the fact that your your call records could potentially be viewed by somebody who wanted to find out. Yeah, I, 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 well, I was certainly surprised that that it was so easy to get hold of of stuff. And um, I mean, I, I, I don't think. I mean, I, I stopped doing daily reporting um 2009 and i think it's it's since then that they've got more sophisticated at at grabbing records but i know certainly other crime reporters i spoke to were amazed that 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 level of of um knowing who your contacts were was was possible and i th- i think some people are you know jeff edwards who used to be the crime correspondent at the mirror um told one story about meeting one of his contacts under, underneath a bridge, you know. Um, and I don't know if we're, whether or not we'll eventually have to go back to that or meet people in Turkish baths or something. But it, it, it's, it is, um, I think, very disturbing that, that anybody you talk to or email is now, could now potentially be fingered. Yeah. So we talk back, back to the book. I mean, what, what, who is the... Um... I was wondering who's the uh, crime reporter you kind of found you you admired the most in the book. Who's your favourite? Maybe maybe from the history <laughs> and from and from the current sort. Of well, fr- from history, I mean W. T. Stead, who was the Pall Mall Gazette, who uh, extraordinary character. I think he'd make a wonderful character in a film. I mean, he, he was a kind of he believed that he and God were in partnership, but he was very driven and quite rightly by the fact that girls as young as 13 were being used as prostitutes in London by the aristocracy and everybody else, and it was a scandal, and nobody did anything about it because they were mainly 
working class girls and so on. And he went undercover and exposed this. And as a result, the age of consent was was raised from 13 to 16. Uh, he went to prison and was very proud to have gone to prison. Um, and I think it, it, the amount, he did an enormous amount of work. And uh, But he did expose a great scandal, and I, I, I think, you know, he set a, a kind of template. Um, more recently, I mean, Duncan Webb, who was the, the people's guy, um, is, is a strange character, you know, and uh, there used to be all the, there's all these stories about him that, you know, he worked behind a bulletproof screen in the, in the office and had eight locks on his door and so on. And he... He was very close to Billy Hill, who was the, the boss of the underworld in the 1950s and ghosted his book. And he, he certainly had a very lively um, career and he's credited with being the man who came up with uh, I made my excuses and left, although there's three <laughs> different people compete for that. So I think those two. And then one who's still with us, Jimmy Nicholson, the Prince of Darkness, who, when I started, was very friendly. I mean, a, a complete character that uh, Damon Runyon could have written. So those three stand out. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the, um, what's the best story, that you, the, the best sort of story you worked on, do you think? Well, um, I, mean, in, in, I mean, in some ways the most interesting was the the west case in 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 the way that it unfolded um and the one with the sort of most waves um i also fred west and rose west yes and the trial with the trial um and i don't know i mean i found the 
the Stoke Newington corruption inquiry, which went on uh, much longer than I would have hoped, um, was was very informative, just in terms of of um, sources and libel actions and and so on. Um, so I suppose those two, and then the the Torso murder case, which was two people who I believed were wrongly convicted of murder, and we did a lot of stuff, and I found the person who was the main witness against them, who eventually um, said he'd made up his evidence. And they were cleared, but they were inside for more than 20 years before they were cleared, and they then received hundreds of thousands of pounds in compensation. But that was one that I had kind of followed for more than 20 years. Oh, wow. It always strikes me that... um the journalists who write about crime, you know, if you write about other things, you get you get some nasty phone calls and maybe some uh, grumpy letters from PRs. But um, mm-hmm. if you're writing about crime, you're dealing uh, the stakes can be rather higher. <laughs> I mean, that's yes, it. for some people. I mean, Brit- in Britain, we're lucky, you know, compared to Mexico, Honduras, Russia, mm. Turkey. You know, we're we're quite lucky. Ireland, we have had somebody um, killed who was turning over mm. um, drug dealers. But by and large... Um, Martin O'Hagan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, there's been... By and large, there's, there's not been a lot of, of violence carried out against um, crime reporters here. There's various threats and, and, and so on. But I think, um, I think we've been quite lucky here in, in that there's a feeling, I think probably among some criminals, that if you, if you, whack, the, if you whack the press, then they really get involved, you know, so you might as well leave them alone um, I mean, and stick to the libel court. Do you, I mean, you find largely you, inti- intimidation is not something you kind of encountered? or Not really, no. Um, I think, I mean, sometimes people are unhappy that you're doing a story, but I can't think of anyone... Um, who one took seriously you know you would get calls saying you are a dead man and I know the way you go to work and things like that but I always thought that people who phone up to tell you that are not going to do it otherwise why are they telling you that and I did have somebody ages ago who did know how I went to he knew where I changed tubes and everything and uh, he was going to shoot me in the base of the spine so that I'd be paralysed and everything and uh, and then you know finally I we went we talked to our lawyers about it and they said well tape record him the the next time and I just said you you do realise you've been taped and we have to and that was the end of it you know <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought it, he got more and I think you probably know this as well as me that people who who enjoy doing that kind of stuff. Fortunately, it was before Twitter when there's this kind of constant mm. horrible stuff which um, you know which you you get to a certain extent when you in in the comments bit, but I rarely read the bits underneath yeah. stuff, so it's just better not to worry what do you think about the sort of future of um uh, crime reporting is it um like everything else in journalism rather uh imperiled or do you think it's looking okay I think I think it'll um, I was talking to Martin Brunt about it <laughs> he, he was talking about how, how uh, 
he could tell life had changed because when he wrote the word blagger on his computer, it was changed to blogger, you know, and that was a kind of sign of how, how we were being overtaken by digitalization. And he was saying, and, and others have said, it would be very hard now as a sort of 20-something crime reporter starting, you know, 40 years ago, it, obviously the, the Guardian had different kind of police who were interested in chatting to you, but 40 years ago people were curious about talking to, to journalists, and, and if you didn't, if they found out they could uh, trust you, then, then you could have a rapport with them. I think it would be very, very difficult now to start, even doing this book, I spoke to a lot of ex-coppers that I knew about relations with the press, and it's a history book, but I also was trying to get some current ones, and one of them, who would have been great, said, I'd love to, but I would have to have a press officer present, and we live in different times, sorry, and that was the end of, of the interview. I'm sure that will change. I think it's probably more in the Met than in the rest of the country. I think it's a, a London thing. Um, and, you know... There will always be an interest in these in stories, in murders, in Hatton Garden burglaries, and so on. And people will find ways of doing it which we can't imagine. Yeah. But even as you say, for a sort of hi- for a history book, uh, serving police officers felt it would be sort of more than their job was worth to uh, have a have a conversation with you. I know. I mean, they they say we can only talk if it's about a specific case, and and. It it just seemed, you know, the the level of paranoia is is such that um, they don't. I mean, they joke about it, but they they don't like to be seen even in a canteen at the Old Bailey having a coffee with you in case somebody rats on them. And there's lots of rats around. <laughs> well, just one quick final question. Then the um, uh, you worked at the Guardian obviously for a long time, twenty yes. twenty years, twenty three um, years, yes, and. Um, Alan Rosbridger, long-serving editor there, stepped down last year. He's now um, stepping up to the uh, Scott Trust, the owner yeah. of the Guardian, I think, um, in September. And uh, a little bit of uh, you know, criticism in the, in the uh, Times and the FT elsewhere about his um, stewardship of the paper mm-hmm. because of the losses it's seeing at the moment. But what, I mean, what, what, was it, what did you think, think of him as, a, a, just as an editor and uh, someone to work with? I thought he was terrific. I mean, my the, the biggest kind of connection with him working was um, he was the editor when I got sued by eight officers backed by the police federation one of you know that there was then the 96th action against journalists and um, he decided to fight it he decided that he would fight libel actions that he thought the Guardian perhaps you know should should fight that they had a case and he fought Jonathan Aitken he fought Neil Hamilton and he fought the police federation, and those are high stakes. I mean, we we were going down for nine hundred thousand if we lost because we had George Carmen, five thousand quid a day, um, and I, they, there was a, a mistrial, and the the trial started again, and Carmen and the solicitors were brought into the Guardian, and Alan was there, and Carmen was said was we were not allowed to use any evidence of stuff that had happened since I wrote my story. We couldn't talk about all the people I'd written who who had been cleared of uh, offences and given compensation, which would have we thought was very important, but the judge wouldn't let us. And um, Alan said, or the managing director at the time, 
said, what are our chances of winning? And, and Carmen said, probably one in four. And uh, they said, well, it's a matter of principle, we fight on. And I would get notes right throughout the trial uh, from Alan saying, whatever happens, we're doing the right thing, and, and so on. And it, it made an enormous difference um, that you felt he was completely on your side. And then, you know, and, and when we won, um, and we were able to publish everything, um, you know, and he he was very happy that... that uh, that his decision was vindicated and and um so from that point of view i couldn't have asked for a more supportive editor who was not because the the federation kept saying wow we expect you'll settle on the steps of the court because that was how most of those actions were ended and i think it was from that point of view i, I was very impressed with him that he he never lost his nerve Thanks very much. Okay. Duncan Campbell, thank you for coming on the Journalism okay. Matters podcast. Great. And uh, the next edition will be available for download in two weeks' time. <laughs>